Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and with Independence Day upon us, we're celebrating America's birthday with a show we're calling A Different Drummer. Over the next hour, we'll meet people defying convention and confounding critics, from artists to entrepreneurs. We'll visit an exhibit that challenges how we view classic American symbols. Americans over time have taken this iconic symbol and added their own interpretation into what it means. We'll go behind the scenes at a festival that truly cuts the edge of American theater. I'm looking for plays that are immediate, plays that are relevant, plays that hit me in my gut. And we'll meet the drummers and brass players and twirlers who march to their own tune with D.C.'s only LGBT marching band. When you look at society as a whole and the leadership within the world, it's ever-changing. And I feel like our organization is doing the same thing. Now, in a way, Washington, D.C. might not seem like the most obvious place to march to the beat of your own drum. After all, how many people look at life in the nation's capital and say, Everybody's in the government, everybody's got their stable 9 to 5, and everybody works 35 hours a week. And sure, says 37-year-old Columbia Heights resident Caesar Layton, for many of his fellow Washingtonians, That's fine. I mean, that's a great life for a lot of people. But what interests him are the other people. There's this whole ecosystem of crazy entrepreneurs that are running around and they're creating new companies and they're failing and they're getting right back up and creating another company and they're failing and then they create one that succeeds and then they were like oh that was boring and then create something else gives you a lot of energy it's great to hang out with people like this thing is caesar's doing a lot more than just hanging out with these folks as founder of cultivate ventures a new dc-based venture firm he's helping them start businesses in washington's burgeoning food scene i have worked in this local food space in dc for four years now and looking at it for about 12 years and We were always wondering, like, how can we help the local food businesses in D.C.? How can we attract more attention to all the really innovative and exciting things that are going on in the general D.C., Maryland, Virginia area? Among Cultivate Ventures' initial clients are an organic tomato farm in Frederick, Maryland, Maketo, the new culinary marketplace coming to H Street Northeast, and the spot we're visiting today, Sona Creamery and Wine Bar, the first cheesemaking creamery in the district. So this is... uh... Our vat, it holds about 264 gallons of milk. Filled to capacity, it's about 3,500 pounds, so it's like parking a car in here. (laughs) Conan O'Sullivan opened the wine bar with his wife Jen in Capitol Hill earlier this year. The creamery will kick into gear soon here in this temperature-controlled storefront adjacent to the wine bar on Pennsylvania Avenue. Because we're the first creamery ever in uh, D.C., you know, there's no roadmap on how to build this thing. And so for us, I mean, we're just buried in operations. So how do we like reach out to our community? How do we grow? How do we do these type of things, even on the regulatory side? And that's where Caesar has really stepped in and sort of saved the day. Caesar Layton and his two Cultivate Ventures partners have decades of experience in business consulting, including finding investors and raising money. But as he points out, startups like Sona often require more than just capital. We can help them look at technology and how that can improve their business. It can be, are you talking and communicating with your customers correctly? Have you thought of a new distribution channel that's different than what your original business case was based on? And actually, with Caesar's help, Sona has. It's gotten its cheese onto local restaurant menus. And now Caesar and the O'Sullivans are looking at online grocery options, even selling their stuff at Nationals Park. A lot of times in entrepreneurial support, that concept is, okay, we're going to train you to do this, and goodbye, have fun. Or we're going to raise money for you, and that's the end of our relationship. 
But we think that entrepreneurs really need a long-term partner. We don't charge a consulting fee. We're not a consulting company. So if we don't do what we say we're going to do, we don't get paid anything. This is not a one-night stand. This is not a one-night stand. We're lovers. <laughs> it's, all, it's all about the love. So, yeah, we're, it's pretty snuggly. Pretty snuggly. <laughs> That's your tagline? Cultivate Ventures, pretty snuggly. <laughs> Another recipient of that snuggliness is this woman, Ellie Cherry, who a few years back founded Snack Packers. We were focused on corporate wellness because we, re- we realized people spend more than a third of their waking hours in the workplace. So companies will purchase from us, and we will deliver healthy snacks to them on a weekly basis or whatnot for their offices. So are you local, regional, national? We deliver nationally, but we're based locally. She says Snack Packers is in a pretty good place. It's a solid product. We've got revenue. We've got customers. But the problem now? I don't really know how to take it to the next level. So with Cultivate Ventures, she's looking beyond the office for ways to sell her healthy snacks. Direct to consumers, potentially through some wholesalers, um, and through different channels that we haven't yet explored. So it's, it's exciting to see what fruits we bear. Caesar Layton says what draws him to an entrepreneur like Ali Cherry or Conan and Jen O'Sullivan is how someone like that gets an idea. And says, screw it, I'm going to do it, regardless of the risk. And they go blindly into the, into the abyss, and they, then they struggle, and they survive. And all the while, he says, they get to be their own boss. I told my wife a few years ago, you know what, I'm just going to do whatever I can not to have to wear a suit and not to actually have a real job. And if, if I never have to go back and work for the man again, I'll be pretty stoked. And it seems like you're working with other people who don't have to work for the man. Yeah, we're, we're all sort of, you know, we're just doing our own thing. And we are in it to win it together. And if we win, we win big. And if we lose, well, that was our own fault. So um, it makes it a little bit more interesting. Not only more interesting for them, but for the entire national capital region. Where entering the food business seems to be an increasingly capital idea. It's one thing to march to your own beat as a full-fledged adult, but what about when you're still in high school? Driana Richardson just graduated from Ballou High School in southeast D.C. Her grandmother had schizophrenia, which inspired Driana to advocate for people with mental illness. As our Beating the Odds series continues, Kavitha Cardoza brings us the story of another student who's overcome major obstacles to find success. Triana Richardson is 18 years old. She's quiet and gentle, but she notices a lot. She hasn't had an easy life. My mom and her nine kids, she was a single mother. I mean, we saw our fathers here and there, but all we knew was our mom. Like, she was our mom and dad. Her mother was using drugs, but Triana didn't want to believe it, even when her mother left her and her siblings home alone for hours. Or when Child Protective Services started visiting, not even when she found drug paraphernalia in a kitchen drawer. I was too young and naive. My big brother and sister then, they kept on telling me, and I'm like, no, my mother don't do drugs, because it was my mom. Like, I wasn't going to believe that she was doing drugs. Her mother was using a form of PCP and was in and out of prison and rehab for several years. As her mother's addiction worsened, Driana and her eight siblings were split up and sent to live with different relatives. At age 11, Driana moved in with her father and grandmother. It wasn't long before she noticed her grandmother behaved differently sometimes. She spoke to herself often and yelled at strangers. 
So I was like, why is grandma talking like that? I thought it was funny. Like, I thought she was being funny, but she was serious. And then, like, one night I came downstairs and I heard her yelling and screaming. And, like, she was crying. And I, I tried to hug her, but she gave me this look, and I just, like, backed off. It was scary for me because it was, like, a cold look. She just went to this whole new person. Like, she looked kind of evil. Her father explained. But my dad was like, your grandmother got schizophrenia, and I couldn't even pronounce it. Like, I was like, what is that? Like, I never heard that term before. Sometimes her grandmother's behavior was embarrassing, like the time her two best friends came over after school. So they come, they came over there, and, like, we was upstairs, and all we heard was her screaming, and she was kirking out, she was throwing stuff. Like, it was one of her worst days. I'm like, wow, bad day to have friends over. But that was kind of new for them, and, like, they were really scared, and, like, they talked about it in school. Like, Rihanna, Grandma was scared of us, and, like, I hopped in her arms like Shaggy and Scooby-Doo. Neighborhood children were cruel, taunting her grandmother as she walked by kids throwing rocks at my grandmother's window, calling her a witch, calling her these names, because they didn't understand the disorder themselves. They didn't understand what was going on. Driana says none of them saw how funny and loving her grandmother was. Every Easter, I will never forget, she'd get all her grandkids. We'd gather around her in the kitchen. She, she would let us help her bake our own personal cakes. She'd let us choose our own flavor. She would bake with us, and she <laughs> loved her grandbabies. You couldn't tell her enough about her grandbabies. She would let us all sleep in her bed if our parents would allow it. (laughs) It was almost as if her grandmother was two very different people. When she on her good side, like, I feel like that's her legit self. The evil thing, that's the schizophrenia. But, like, my grandmother's actually very kind-hearted. She she had the sweetest smile. Driana was doing very well at school, getting a 3.5 GPA, thanks to her father's prodding. My father always said he didn't want us to be like him or my mom. He didn't want us to run the streets and get locked up and get pregnant at a young age. He always wanted us to stick to school and go to college and be better than them. He was very involved in her education, attending every parent-teacher conference and making sure she finished her homework every day. Driana started reading everything she could get her hands on. It just takes me to another place. Like, I would be in my room and lock myself in my room and just read. It's awesome. I get so much from books. I love school. Like, it's just something about it. I, not only do I get my education, but I meet people. I have mentors. I just really like learning. I love learning new things. Driana's empathy has opened her heart to possibilities. She's dated a boy with autism. She asks homeless people about their lives because she can't bear to see everyone else walking by. She knows several people with mental disorders in addition to her grandmother, relatives with bipolar disorder, ADHD, depression. Her personal experiences have made her want to learn more. I just want to study it because my family is a bunch of crazy people, but they're also awesome people. And I don't think people see that like they are very funny and they just fun to be around. They're very protective and loving and helping. And I feel like, well, if they're crazy, I'm crazy. Driana's family isn't unusual. One in four adults experiences mental illness every year, and one in 17 lives with a serious mental illness. Driana feels studying the causes of mental illness will help bridge our gaps in understanding these conditions. That's my goal, to build bonds with these people and to let them know that, you know, it's still happiness in life, even while you got this disorder. Driana's grandmother died in March from lung cancer, and she's still mourning that loss. But she knows her grandmother will be her inspiration as she begins studies in clinical psychology at Bennett College in North Carolina on a full scholarship. She believes helping others is critical in life because she says 
Even when people do have something wrong with them, no one wants to be stuck in that black hole. Everyone wants to be happy. I'm Kavita Cardoza. Kristen Sorensen contributed to this report. Special thanks also to Julie Alderman. You can hear all the stories from this year's Beating the Odds series, along with stories from previous years, on our website, metroconnection.org. Partial support for education reporting on WAMU 88.5 comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. the break playing with pride a local band marks three decades of marching quite literally to its own beat we focus on not only the GLBT issues but also just being human and enjoying what we have a passion for which is music plus the patriarch of pop and the prince of realism painters who chose not to embrace an artistic revolution. This is really one of the scariest portraits I've ever seen. Stay with us. That and more is just ahead as Metro Connection continues here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Our theme this Independence Day weekend is a different drummer, and the man we'll meet next fits that description to a T, both metaphorically and literally. Hear that? Those are the kettle drums known as timpani, and Javon Gilliam knows that instrument quite well. He's the principal timpanist for the National Symphony Orchestra and one of only two black musicians in the acclaimed D.C.-based ensemble. Lauren Ober met up with Gilliam and brings us his story. Javon Gilliam's father gave him two choices growing up. He could play sports and he could play music. What he could not do was run the streets in his hometown of Gary, Indiana, getting into all kinds of trouble. A lot of my friends were getting into other sort of less desirable things, and my dad would have none of that. So Gilliam studied piano and worked on his jump shot. Both of those pursuits helped him get where he is today, sitting behind a set of timpani a few rows away from the conductor of the National Symphony Orchestra. The 34-year-old is the principal timpanist for the NSO, a position he's held for the past five years. It's not exactly a glamorous role like, say, the concertmaster, but it's one of the most critical. The timpanist's job in the, as a whole within the orchestra is to kind of sort of be the, the groove maker, if you will, or I like to sometimes call it the bus driver, uh, to make sure that the conductor and I are in sync so that we make sure that the orchestra sort of stays together. If Gilliam's instrument is unique, then so is the man behind it. As a musician of color, the timpanist is a rare sight on the many stages he's performed on around the world. There are only two black players in the NSO, and the other, second violinist Desi Alston, is retiring at the end of the year. Gilliam chalks up the lack of classical musicians of color to culture. 
I did not grow up listening to classical music. In my house, it was all Earth, Wind, and Fire. It was all, you know, Jackie Wilson. You know, it was all that kind of stuff. And then my friends, even once I started to become a bit of a teenager, it was, you know, definitely more hip-hop, more rap type of music. And so I think when you say that there aren't that many people of color in orchestras, I think it's just because they're not exposed to it. The timpani or kettle drums don't enjoy the same kind of name recognition as kick or snare drums might, so a brief music lesson is in order. Timpani are pitched instruments. We actually can change the notes with our feet. And so if my feet aren't in the right place or on the right pedal to change the note at the right time, it's like playing out of tune or pushing down a wrong key for a trumpet player or something like that. Playing timpani is as much a matter of choreography as it is understanding the music. I equate being a timpanist to being a dancer. It's all about the choreography. Your hands and feet have to be at the correct place at the correct time, or you'll play a wrong drum or you'll play a wrong note. To fully appreciate the instrument, you have to hear it. So we ventured down to a big room in the basement of the Kennedy Center, affectionately referred to as Gilliam's Lair. This is where all of Gilliam's equipment is stored, including his monster collection of drumsticks. Let me find a pair of sticks here, and we can show you what we're doing. Are those all of your... No. There's this case, there's that case, there's sticks in there, and then there's all the sticks I have at home. But do you have, like, your favorites? I do. All these sticks aside, I really only use, like, two or three pairs that are my go-to pairs that are kind of like my homeboys. I really, I use those for most of my playing. A lot of timpanists use a lot of pairs of sticks. That's one particular way of doing it. I tend to use sort of the same sticks to try to um, make my sound more consistent throughout the repertoire. And so I usually end up finding two or three pairs of sticks that are my go-tos. Getting the timpani to ring out into the audience requires hitting the drum head in just the right spot, not too close to the center or the edge. But best to let Gilliam describe it. I'm trying to get the best possible tone. That's my main goal in everything I do. I want to make sure that the tone that I want to produce is actually articulated out into the audience, onto the recording, and to what everybody hears. So if I play smack in the middle of the drum, this is the kind of pitch that you end up getting. Sounds more like a bass drum or or tom-tom. It doesn't necessarily have a definitive pitch. If I play at the very, very edge of the drum, this is what you get. More tone ring as you can hear it but it still can be more defined if you play a little bit closer in four to six inches off of the lip and you get something like this so you can hear them in the middle at the very edge in the correct playing spot there's more tone in the right playing spot and so that's generally where i play most of the time part of what gives gilliam's timpani that deep resonant sound is his drum head selection He uses animal skins on his primary drum set, though for outdoor shows he uses plastic skins because of the heat and humidity. The animal skins are so sensitive to climate that Gilliam stores them in a giant humidor. We have a a custom-made humidor in this room, which I think is is awesome. I don't know anybody else that has a humidor this big. And inside this humidor, you'll see we have spare natural heads, and I have a cylinder in there which actually has spare skins that that haven't been used yet. Gilliam unwraps the skin so we can have a look. As you can see, it's basically a sheet itself, right? It smells, smell it, smells... It smells like animal-y. Right, right, and it's, it's in the humidor, so it's nice and moist right now. Perfect for some Ravel or Shostakovich. I'm Lauren Ober. 
Javon Gilliam and the NSO are prepping for a bunch of summer shows at a bunch of venues, including the Wolf Trap National Park for the Performing Arts in Vienna, Virginia. You can find out more on our website, metroconnection.org. We move now from the symphony to music of another sort, as Julie Alderman introduces us to a D.C. band that's been marching to a beat all its own for nearly 35 years. On a humid Saturday morning, dozens of musicians gather in an empty parking lot in Alexandria. After a quick stretch to warm up, they break off into groups, one for percussionists, one for brass players, and one for the color guard. Together, they make up D.C.'s different drummers, D.C.'s only LGBT marching band. The band was founded in 1980 as D.C.'s different drummers to provide kind of a safe space for members of the LGBT community. Zachary Parker is director of Different Drummers, which is commonly called D.C.D.D. He says the group used to play solely at Capital Pride, but in recent years, D.C.D.D. has performed at Independence Day parades festivals, and corporate events. As we stand watching the group march in formation, Zachary keeps trying to make excuses. He says it's been an exhausting week, and the musicians haven't been able to practice because of bad weather. To me, they look and sound really good, especially when they dive into popular hits. We really try to focus on stuff that the audience will know we really like it when people sing along with us. Our music this year is really tailored to kind of the popular music. We're playing stuff like Let It Go from Frozen, Pompeii by Bastille. We are an LGBT group, so we've got some Lady Gaga and Katy Perry thrown in. The energy at rehearsal is infectious. And much of the credit for that goes to DCDD's drum major and president, Derek Johnson. I was at dinner with some friends, just moved to town, and they were saying, oh, you were drum major at Florida, you should join our band. And so I was like, what band is this? So I went to one of the rehearsals, I sat down in the front and just kind of listened uh, to the group, and I said, oh, they really need me. As drum major, Derek leads the band through marching formations all around the parking lot, calling commands and keeping time with the music. His enthusiasm is contagious as he skillfully weaves in and out of marching musicians, making his way from front to back. It's hard to believe anyone can have that much energy on a sweltering summer day. A lot has changed in the realm of gay rights since the band was created. The group was formed around the same time as the 1979 National March on Washington for Gay Rights. I asked Derek if he's noticed any changes in the group since he joined five years ago. When you look at society as a whole and the leadership within the world, it's ever-changing. And I feel like our organization is doing the same thing. It's changing along with the times. We have a lot of not only GLBT folks within the group, but some straight allies, which is great. Derek's right. Society has changed. In 2011, Gallup reported that for the first time in history, a majority of Americans supported same-sex marriage. Right now, 19 states plus D.C. allow gay and lesbian couples to get married. 
Derek says the band has changed from a group of marginalized people to something open to everyone. The organization was founded as a GLBT base. It's almost a safe haven for the uh, GLBT community, but now it's more of an equality group. Amy Kelly, the vice president of DCDD, says the group is united not by sexual orientation, but by a general support of LGBT rights. Um, it's, I mean, I think it's really great for, for everyone to have their group of people to be around that, that are like them. Um, but it's also really great to not always separate yourself. And uh, DCD is definitely about making sure that everyone can, can be together and that we share a common concern about LGBT issues and we share a common care of, of LGBT people and have people in our lives. Um, but you don't have to be, you don't have to identify as LGBT whether you are or not, and that's great. And some band members say they don't need as much of a safe haven as people did back in the early days of DCDD. Many say it's friendship among fellow musicians that makes getting up early for a rehearsal or a performance easy. That, of course, and the music itself, according to Jessica Reno, a recent college graduate who joined the band this year. I mean, this is the most fun thing I could be doing. I love playing music, and I love this group of people. It's just an all-around happy place to be. I'm Julie Alderman. Do you have a favorite memory of local marching bands and Fourth of July parades? If so, we want to hear about it. Email us at metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at wamumetro. shine the spotlight on a festival that pushes the theatrical envelope. What's so funny is if you see this board, they are disappointed if there's not at least one play that doesn't quite work. They say we are here to not just succeed, but to fail. Plus the stars, the stripes, the controversy. A new exhibit looks at interpretations of classic American icons. You think about the power of art and the power of visual objects to start very difficult conversations. Those stories are coming your way on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and happy Independence Day weekend. In honor of the occasion, on today's show, we are marching to the beat of a different drummer. Before the break, we kept time with the district's only LGBT marching band. And in just a bit, NPR's Susan Stamberg will introduce us to the radical painters now being featured at the National Portrait Gallery in downtown D.C. But first, we'll head 90 minutes northwest of the city. Yeah, we'll just go on the front porch. It's a really beautiful view. Oh, that'd be great. Unless, the, unless there's any noise or something. Oh, it doesn't matter. To Shepherdstown, West Virginia a quaint town chartered along the Potomac River in 1762. It's home to the 5.87-acre campus of Shepherd University and the three-story Southern-style mansion of University President Suzanne Shipley. Sitting on our front porch, you look out and you see two copper buildings to the right, and those two buildings populate our summer with these fascinating people and these great works of art. One of these buildings opened in 2008, the other last year, to form the university's Center for Contemporary Arts. Inside the copper shingled structures are scene shops, rehearsal halls, offices, and stages for the Contemporary American Theater Festival at Shepherd University. 
The summer festival started in an old gym on campus in 1991. Now the university is partnering with CATF for the 24th time to bring those great works of art President Shipley mentions to historic Shepherdstown. Is it true that Shepherdstown is the oldest town in West Virginia? We have one other town in West Virginia that wonders whether that is true, but Ed likes to say the newest plays in the oldest town in West Virginia. We are the newest place, that's for sure. Uh, don't look in the window so that we don't even know where he is, okay? This time through, try it that way. This is the Ed President Shipley was talking about. Ed Herendine not only serves as CATF's founder, he's also a director. This season, he's helming two new American plays, One Night by Charles Fuller and North of the Boulevard by Bruce Graham. I recently sat in on a rehearsal for the latter, which is set outside Philadelphia in an auto repair shop where a group of working-class guys yearn to escape their increasingly corrupt neighborhood. You know, him and Schmidt walked away with 80 grand just from that addition to the library. Just for a second, Michael. Can you tweak your chair out, open it up just a little bit? Because your voice is great going that way, but I lose it a little bit on this house, and I don't want you to feel like you got to push it, Okay. Each summer, CATF produces five plays in a rotating repertory. So ostensibly, you could see all of them in just two days. Given CATF's commitment to new American theater, they're all world premieres, commissions, or like the two shows Ed's directing, works that recently had a first production elsewhere. North of the Boulevard premiered last spring in Philadelphia, Charles Fuller's One Night, which shines an intense light on sexual abuse in the military, had its initial run in New York City this past fall. But Charles wanted to do more work on the play. And so even though that play has had its premiere, and I do my air quotes for your listeners, he's rewritten that play. And so we're working with him, providing him an opportunity while the play is still warm and fresh in his imagination because he learned so much from the first production. Because new plays are never really, really finished for a while. You need several productions. Which is why many of CATF's plays have actually had long, healthy lives beyond Shepherdstown. Like Stick Fly by Lydia R. Diamond. Went to Arena Stage and ultimately went to Broadway. Gideon's Knot by Jonna Adams. The most produced American play last season around the country. Or Farragut North. Bo Willimon's script eventually morphed into the Oscar-nominated screenplay for The Ides of March, starring George Clooney and Ryan Gosling. And sure, Ed says, when it comes to all these post-CATF accolades... We're very proud. But he's quick to add... It's not how we measure our success... So one way that we personally measure success is when the writers go away feeling like their time spent here was worthwhile and that the script, in their minds, improved, making it something that maybe they didn't even know they had. That's music to the ears of Thomas Gibbons. His play, Uncanny Valley, is making its world premiere at CATF this summer. To find a theater that has such an unswerving dedication to new plays, there aren't very many. And naturally, as a playwright, that makes it like heaven to me. That unswerving dedication, he says, also extends to subject matter. My agent had represented another playwright who had had a play here last year. She told me that Ed Herndine likes plays about big ideas. And she was right. As Thomas Gibbons explains it, the big idea behind Uncanny Valley is artificial consciousness. And the possibility of downloading human consciousness into an artificial body as a means of extending our lifespan or even achieving immortality. Did I convey the emotion of the piece? The emotion? Please be honest. You learn the notes first. The emotion comes later. But I felt something, yes. 
Did you, Julian? Is there a difference between conveying an emotion and feeling it, I mean? Most people would say so, but if you're asking me to explain it... Let me put it another way. If I could simulate an emotion well enough to convince someone, you, that I felt it, would that be the same thing as genuinely feeling it? Ah, Turing test of the emotions. In a way. We're contemporary, and, you know, so I'm looking for plays that are immediate, plays that are relevant, plays that hit me in my gut. And it doesn't tie things up in a nice bow at the end. Again, CATF founder Ed Herendine. When you come to this Contemporary American Theater Festival, audiences, I hope, are leaving with more questions than answers. And if we leave and we actually have a conversation about the experience we just had, then I think we're doing our job. And doing that job is a whole host of people. CATF has a three-person team during the academic year and more than a hundred during the summer, from actors to stage managers to set builders to sound designers, like, in the interest of full disclosure, my husband, who's worked at CATF for two summers now, but could not be reached for comment. Hey, this is Eric. Ugh, Sorry I missed not you. Again. Leave a message and I'll get back to you. Last year, the festival brought $3 million of revenue to Shepherdstown and attracted nearly 14,000 people, primarily from the D.C. region, but also from 30-plus states and various foreign countries. Not, says Ed, that that was always the case. You know, we had a lot of people walk out the very first season. But now, I think if I were to air, it would be on doing something that's too light and too entertaining because people come, I think, expecting to be challenged. There is an audience out there that wants to not only be the first to see a play, but they have an adventurous appetite for what we're serving on the menu, which is serious art. And as Shepherd University President Suzanne Shipley quickly learned after moving to Shepherdstown in 2007, when it comes to making that serious art, the CATF folks definitely think different. They are disappointed if there's not at least one play that doesn't quite work. They say, we are here to not just succeed, but to fail. We're here to take risks, and not everything's going to work. But whether things work or not, when audiences come from near and far to see a play, she says they're bound to struggle with it and be incensed by it and be activated by it. But most of all, to be inspired by it. In this old town where, for four weeks each summer, a dramatic dose of new is waiting in the wings. The Contemporary American Theatre Festival opens July 11th and runs through August 3rd. How would you like to visit Shepherdstown and have breakfast with Ed Herendine, hang on stage with the cast and crew, or chat with Bina48, the legendary robot that inspired Thomas Gibbons' play? Well, you can actually do all of that this summer. We have CATF Managing Director James McNeil spilling all the behind-the-scenes beans in a special interview on our website, metroconnection.org. We'll head 90 minutes east of Shepherdstown now to Baltimore and a story about American identity. So here we are, 4th of July weekend, and all over the place you're seeing flags and hearing our national anthem. These American emblems have served as inspiration for all sorts of artists and musicians through the years. But some interpretations of these beloved elements of American culture have been pretty controversial. 
Those interpretations and the reactions they've inspired are the focus of a new exhibit at the Reginald F. Lewis Museum of Maryland African American History and Culture. Lauren Landau takes us there. The exhibit is called For Whom It Stands and includes artifacts, photographs, music, art, and documents dating from the Revolutionary War to the present. Most of the pre-World War II-era objects are military-related and reflect more traditional uses of the flag. But Associate Curator Asantua Boachewa says after that period, things get a bit more creative. So whether that's painting it upside down or creating sculptures that are abstract or made out of unique materials or printing it on beer cans and posters, how diverse this very iconic and familiar object is, but how it's used as a device to express our own personal affirmations and aspirations. In the 1950s, American artist Jasper Johns created his first series of flag paintings using non-traditional materials such as newsprint and wax. He sort of, if you will, took apart a traditional object and recreated it in an unusual, non-traditional way. She says if you look at it against the backdrop of McCarthy-era politics, when holding alternative viewpoints landed many Americans, including numerous artists in the hot seat, this was a pretty provocative move. It starts to make sense. Right? You see why oh, this is important. It wasn't just an everyday occurrence where people are like, yes, challenge the flag outright. We want to hear your ideas about what the flag means to you. No, this is what the flag means to you. And the American public is expected to follow that. Asantua says that with more than 100 objects in the show, it's hard to pick a favorite. But with some prodding, she draws my attention to a piece by Helen Zugob. What it is is an Islamic prayer rug fashioned with the colors and the stripes of the United States flag. So she's dealing with her sort of hyphenated identity as an Arab and as an American. If you think about the power of art and the power of visual objects to start very difficult conversations. Very difficult conversations are also par for the course when you're talking about some of the more controversial interpretations of the national anthem. Baltimore-based beatboxer and musician Shodake curated the musical portion of the exhibit. The first half of my mission was to uncover some of the more, I guess you could refer to them as culturally alternative perspectives regarding the musical flag of the national anthem, the Star-Spangled Banner. He settled on 15 different renditions of the song and says he focused on examples that stem from the experiences of minority groups, such as African Americans, Latinos, and Native Americans. I wanted to see if I could find other songs that implemented some elements of uh, protest, perhaps, or implemented some elements of personalizing the American flag, not just for themselves, but for a larger public and for the listeners of these various renditions. I'll start here with entry number five. This is Jimi Hendrix's performance of the Star-Spangled Banner in 1969 at Woodstock, at the time very controversial. Another controversial performance came from the lips of jazz vocalist Renee Marie. In 2008, just before Denver's State of the City address, City Council President Michael Hancock welcomed Marie to the stage to sing the national anthem, which she did, but not with the words people expected. Lift every voice and sing talk about ripping the anthem to pieces and putting it back together again. She took the lyrics of Lift Every Voice and Sing, the African-American cultural national anthem, and sang it to the tune of the Star Spangled Banner. Ring with a harmony 
of liberty. Realistically, I think there is a larger white default culture that has absorbed the way that the song is shared and observed, but within that relationship, there are these other indispensable stories and takes on it. So let's listen to what they have to say and let's break up this larger default culture of the anthem and the flag as much as possible. In September, Shodake will demonstrate his vocal percussion skills by performing a new interpretation of the national anthem alongside improvisational hip-hop group Baltimore Boom Bap Society and Classical Revolution, a collective of classically trained musicians. I'm Lauren Landau. For Whom It Stands will be on view through February at the Reginald F. Lewis Museum in Baltimore's Inner Harbor. end today's show with another exhibit, this one featuring artists who chose their own paths at a time when most of their counterparts were embracing abstract art. Face value, portraiture in the age of abstraction, is now on display at the National Portrait Gallery in Washington. And NPR special correspondent and Metro Connection contributor Susan Stamberg has the story. Walk softly and carry a big fish was one curator's take on Joan Brown's picture. It's a self-portrait. The artist holds the fish as well as a paintbrush. The black cat lurks below. It may be hungry. In a nearby sculpture, Hugh Hefner, the playboy poobah, holds a pipe in one hand, and there's another pipe, a real one, poking three-dimensionally out of his painted head. This is a 1966 work by Marisol Escobar. She's always using humor and wit to unsettle us, to take all of our expectations about what a sculpture should be and what a portrait should be, and messing with them. Curator Wendy Wick-Reeves. So um, when she's asked why there are two pipes, she says, well, Hugh Hefner has too much of everything. Hugh Hefner claimed his life's work was to overthrow American prudery and Puritanism, and so his bosomy bunnies and his skimpily clad centerfold cuties. Marisol sculpts him in a comfy red cardigan, a kind of Mr. Rogers sweater. The homey outfit upends our expectations of what a sex merchant would sport. The flip side of Hugh Hefner is Sylvia Slee's 1973 painting, The Turkish Bath. Six pretty stoned-looking men, naked and very anatomically correct. She is turning the idea of the male artist and the male gaze, which was often trained on women in an objectified way in the past, on its ear. This is Brandon Fortune, chief curator at the National Portrait Gallery. She's flipping everything around in a feminist way, and I think this is one of the strongest feminist paintings I've ever seen. Think of all the female nudes you've seen on museum walls. Sylvia Sleeve's Turkish bath puts men in similar poses, not worshipping them the way male artists adore the women they paint, but poking fun at the men pretty shamelessly. Slee was a rebel, 
as are many of the artists in this show. Curator Wendy Wick-Reeve says there was an art revolution underway in the 1950s and 60s. Abstract was the word du jour, to which these painters replied, phooey. Well, they were so self-conscious about painting the figure or the face because critics like Clement Greenberg basically said, you can't be a progressive artist and paint the figure. And so they decided that was exactly what they were going to do, but they're doing it in a completely different way. And I think that the fact that it was so unfashionable at the time really pushed them to reinvent, to reinvigorate the whole concept of how you portray the individual. The result some really knockout portraits at this face value show, pictures that make you smile or peer or puzzle over. There's Philip Pearlstein's 1968 portrait of two artists, painter Al Held and sculptor Sylvia Stone. Curator Brandon Fortune says they were friends of Pearlstein's. In those decades, lots of artists painted one another. Pearlstein's artist model friends are husband and wife. He was doing a series of portraits of married couples, and he's focusing on the act of sitting for so long for an artist who's looking at you and really sucking all the humanity out of you. He poses his people like objects. The big canvas has a washed-out look, mostly beige. Those bright, harsh lights are wiping out most of the color. You still see the blue of her sweater and her stockings. And he's got, I think it's a beige turtleneck. It's hard to see because his head is sort of covering his neck. Exactly, chinos. And chinos. But you see, if you hadn't said he was really painting the act of modeling or the experience of modeling, I would have said that this was about the boredom and tedium that marriage can be. I think it's about the boredom and tedium of sitting for a portrait. See what I mean? You puzzle over these pictures. You wonder, for instance, what Andy Warhol and Jamie Wyeth could possibly have in common. Warhol, who made easels pop with his art, and Wyeth with his careful, realistic paintings. But there they are, side by side in this show, painted by one another in 1976. They were considered polar opposites. Again, curator Wendy Wick-Reeves. Andy was called the patriarch of pop, and... Jamie was called the Prince of Realism, but actually both of them had become enormously famous, but also had endured extraordinary critical censure for the way their art was done. And they had a lot of interests in common. They collected Americana. They were interested in death and morbidity. They really got along splendidly. Warhol gives Wyeth the Elizabeth Taylor treatment, makes him movie star handsome with flat little rainbow-colored stripes outlining his cheek and neck. Wyeth, on the other hand, paints Warhol pale and pockmarked. Right. This is really one of the scariest portraits I've ever seen. He's given you the entire landscape of the face in excruciating detail. And he's added this kind of florid color to make it all even more intense. It is scary. Unsettling. The theme that runs through a lot of the portraits in this show is how do you reinvent portraiture after abstraction? How do you reinvigorate these traditions so they are exciting, knock-your-socks-off kinds of portrayals? This one is knock-your-socks-off. 
And Andy Warhol's reaction to the Wyeth painting? He said he loved it. When can you trust what Warhol says? Well, you could take it at face value. That's the title of this show at the National Portrait Gallery. It runs through early January. Subtitled, Portraiture in the Age of Abstraction. It shows how portraiture holds its own in the face of the shifting dribs and drabbles of art tastes and appreciation. Dribs and drabbles. I love it. Anyway, that was NPR's special correspondent and regular Metro Connection contributor, Susan Stamberg. You can see some of the works you just heard about on our website, metroconnection.org. And you can check out Face Value at the National Portrait Gallery in Northwest D.C. through January 11th. Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Lauren Ober, Kavitha Cardoza, Lauren Landau, and Julie Alderman, along with NPR's Susan Stamberg. WAMU's Managing Editor of News is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's Managing Producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our Editorial Assistant. Our interns are Julie Alderman and Lindsay Sperber. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU Engineering and Digital Media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. We have info on all the music we use on metroconnection.org. Just click a story for information about its accompanying song. And you can hear the entire show on our website. Just click This Week on Metro Connection. Or you can subscribe to our podcast. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll shuffle up a deck of wild cards. We'll go theme-free with an hour of stories that pretty much run the gamut, like the debate over a proposed liquefied natural gas facility in southern Maryland and a world premiere play that blurs the line between man and beast. Plus, we'll meet the author of a new book about Francis Scott Key, and we'll visit a summer camp where cabins and campfires aren't exactly the norm. Not everyone is a sports player. Some kids like the video games and like computer aspects. So that's our main, like, group that we get here. I'm Rebecca Shear, wishing you a happy Fourth of July weekend from Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.